0: On to today's show. Hello, and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Valerie Rockefeller to the show. Valerie Rockefeller chairs the board of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, a private foundation advancing social change that contributes to a more just, sustainable, and peaceful world. She also co-chairs Bank Forward, a network to persuade banks to phase out financing for fossil fuel and to lead on climate. Her professional background is as a middle school special education teacher for adolescents with learning differences and emotional disabilities. She began her teaching career at Central Park East Secondary School in Harlem, New York, and also taught in Australia. Valerie, how are you doing today?
1: Well, Raj, I'm thrilled to be talking to you. I am a huge fan of podcasts in general, and uh, and obviously of yours in particular, because you are addressing one of my favorite topics, and you've done it in a humorous way, which is something we all welcome.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Valerie. Valerie, where are you currently located?
1: I live in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, and I work in the city when we are... Well, you know, working in real life where my office is virtual actually until April 1st at this point. So I am in Connecticut working from home. So delighted that I, I have three kids and delighted and grateful that Connecticut schools are open. So they're actually there.
0: And how's the weather in Connecticut?
1: For me, it is perfect because it is sunny enough outside, but not, you know, not hot and enough that I can send the kids and the dog outside when they get home. And I did not grow up in New England, and I will never, ever stop appreciating the changing leaves and how incredibly beautiful that is.
0: It really is beautiful. My wife and I were up there about 10 years ago in Boston. We spent about a week up there, and we were quite amazed. You know, we've already always heard about it, but we were amazed to make that drive up there. It really is gorgeous.
1: Yes. So I didn't... um, I've lived in Connecticut for about 10 years now, um, but had not done the whole driving up New England, traveling around there until this past summer, which is another... Another joy of discovery of course, for this audience, I have to say, I do have an electric car, so I did not feel as guilty (laughs) as I might have about driving around New England. And there are tons of charging stations, which is not as true when you go south. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Wow. New England
1: has been very, um, well, you know, starting with the whole regional greenhouse gas gas initiative, and and now that New Jersey's back in the fold, New England is a, a role model in terms of energy collaboration, I'd say, in fighting climate change.
0: That's great to hear. So, Valerie, I'd like to open my show by asking my guests the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be?
1: Well, interesting is subjective. I will say that something maybe unexpected I've found is that I um, I grew up in West Virginia, which people, when they meet me now, um, are often surprised to hear because, first of all, I spend so much time working on climate change issues, and, and West Virginia is a place um, that is mainly known, you know, is, is along with the rest of Appalachia for its coal production. And I actually grew up in the southern part of the state, which is the heart of coal country. And I now work um, to work on a just transition away from coal. So trying to, to get us onto renewable energy, which I'd love to talk about some more. And I also think, frankly, being from West Virginia, you know, it brings out some some stereotypes that people don't think that there are Rockefeller is much less, much less, you know, rich people in West Virginia. But I love being from there, and I'd say what is probably even more unexpe- unexpected than me being from West Virginia is that I did my eighth grade social studies project. I did not win, by the way, um, but I did, I did make it to the state competition on women coal miners. So it's interesting when I look back on it that I was, I suppose, focused on gender issues. Uh, maybe it's because I do have three brothers, but, um, not focused on any of the other sort of social or economic or environmental impacts of coal. I mean, literally from where I grew up, I grew up on the Kanawha river and you could, on so there was a road and then the river, which had coal barges going on it. And then on the other side of the river were the train tracks where you saw the coal cars going by there. So very much a coal country person.
0: No, I know I'm asking you to go back in your memory a little bit, but what was the most interesting thing you learned about women coal miners?
1: How incredibly hard it was for them. There were two at the time in the state and how they faced, uh, you know, it's a very well paying job, which is is part of the complexity of transitioning away from coal, um, but not surprisingly a very macho field. And going down in those coal mines, by the way, I was never allowed to do that. I wanted to. Uh, is very dangerous and dirty and miserable and hot and scary. But the, the jobs pay so well that I think I was thought it was a great injustice that there weren't more women who were welcomed into it.
0: That is interesting. And I appreciate you sharing that. So I'm going to switch gears here. Can you give the audience an overview of Bank Forward and your role at the organization?
1: Yes, thank you. I am... Uh, a co-chair and co-founder of Bank Forward with two of my cousins, just to, to back up a little bit. So there are um, lots of Rockefellers everywhere, but the branch that the branch of the family that we are sort of uh, define ourselves by are the John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s offspring, and so from John D. Rockefeller Sr. was the first one and the one who made the money from. Standard Oil. He actually retired when he was young, 49. He was even a year or two younger than I am when he retired from building Standard Oil and then spent the rest of his life in philanthropy. Um, and so there are 300 of us now who are descended from John D. Rockefeller Jr. and who are still and still meet twice a year and um, are connected personally, but largely through philanthropy and there are existing Rockefeller organizations with which I'm also involved, and would like, in particular, talk about the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. But we realized it was time for a new initiative, which is Bank Forward focused on climate finance, and that came out of realizing that even though the family has spent many generations fighting for environmental preservation, um, climate change uh, policy in the last few decades, and are you know more more uh, productive and scientifically based climate change policies. We had not yet begun to address how money that our family holds in primarily JP Morgan Chase but a few other banks as well is invested in the lending that those banks are doing to fossil fuel companies that in fact is undermining the rest of the work that we do through our you know our individual work, through our individual philanthropy but also in some of the collective philanthropy. And work that we do as a family. So my, I am um, from one branch of the family, the John branch of the family and two of my cousins, Danny Growald, who is from the David branch of the family and Peter Gilcase, who was from the Lawrence Rockefeller branch of the family um, started this new initiative, which is designed to build a network of individuals and families and other bank clients who want to use our collective influence to encourage banks to not only phase out their lending to fossil fuels, but to become real leaders in climate responsible, climate smart, climate supportive um, uh, lending and underwriting and investing.
0: So we how just started, are you by the way, mind- we
1: just started in February, 2020.
0: So how are you using your influence?
1: So what we have a little bit of a special advantage with J.P. Morgan Chase, because it used to be known, in fact, as the Rockefeller Bank, and that was um, starting from five generations ago in our family when John D. Rockefeller Jr. wanted to diversify out of fossil fuels and got into um, got into banks, investing in banks. And so there's a long historical association with the family, and that was, you know, most clear when my great uncle David Rockefeller, who is uh, Daniel Gerwald's grandfather, was the chair and CEO of Chase. He worked there for 15, uh, thirty-five years, and so there are a special relationship with the with the bank for us. And we also um, started with J.P. Morgan Chase, frankly, because they are the leading lender to. To fossil fuel companies. And we thought our influence with them is that a lot of us, you know, have money there, even if it's not very much money at this point, that there is the long association as well as the assets. And so we just started asking questions and talking to, to them, um, and were you know welcome into conversation with senior leadership around how they could adopt more responsible uh, banking policies which I would also love to talk about more, talking about alignment with the Paris goals. But specifically using influence is starting with relationships. So the relationships that we had with them as individuals, the historical relationship that we had with the bank because of this association with the family. And then from there, we're talking to other friends of ours and others who became interested in our work who wanted to also um, ask questions and help guide the bank's Where their clients towards more responsible climate policies.
0: And Valerie, can you please speak to the recent op-ed you co-authored in the New York Times?
1: Yes. So thank you. Um, We on uh, October 11th, we were fortunate to have our op-ed published in the New York Times and got a great response to that. Because in addition to which, lays out not only this historical connection with the bank and why we have um, begun working with the bank with JP Morgan Chase but also for the opportunity for leadership not only to have them stop being the global leader in providing funding to fossil fuel companies but also for them to seize this opportunity to be the leader of the future the bank of the future that's why we call ourselves bank forward we want to be thinking about what banks can be doing to support building a new economy based on uh, renewable energy and in therefore in greater social justice. So our op-ed, we were delighted to say we got a great response to that and are encouraging others to sign the pledge, which you can find on our website, uh, wwwbankforward.org And what the pledge does is it lays out how you can get more engaged with your bank and help also persuade um Other banks to compete for your business if, in fact, you don't get the response that you want from your bank in terms of aligning their lending policies uh, with uh, the Paris Accord.
0: So, I appreciate you sharing that. I'm going to read a quote directly from the website. To earn the business of the future, banks must face climate reality. The prerequisite is a clear commitment to end support for fossil fuel companies. Some listening to this show might question, you know, the last name is. "Quote unquote," the elephant in the room. How does you know? How do you square that dichotomy?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, dichotomy is a, is a nice objective <laughs> objective term. We've been accused of being hypocritical, and the great irony of us leading this effort. But in fact, the Rockefeller family. Um, There's seven generations of us now, and it was John D. Rockefeller Sr. who got in, um, you know, began with oil. And the reason he got into it, because at that time they were getting petroleum from whales, which was inefficient and obviously cruel. And he's so digging the, you know, digging fossil fuels out of the ground, getting oil out of the ground, that felt actually quite scientifically advanced and reasonable to be doing at the time. And now, though, we know that we can no longer afford to be polluting our planet and to be changing our climate through getting our energy this way. We've actually known this since the 70s, and the family has been working Since John D. Rockefeller Jr. began buying up land and then donating it for public parks, so has been working to increase public access to beautiful places, so to preserve them and to share them. Not only rich people should have access to, to nature. And Then as the generations went on and it became more and more clear that it was going to take policy change to force um, companies and individuals to make more responsible decisions, we began working on climate change policy at the subnational level, working with states and towns and globally. So the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, which I chair, which has been in existence since 1940, was started by the third generation of Rockefellers, uh, Works on has been working on climate change policy since the 80s, and also then divested from fossil fuels. So to get to your question, that is where we decided to embrace the irony that the source of the wealth was oil, but at this point, based on what we know and based on overwhelming evidence that only scientists... Uh, 3% of scientists apparently were denying climate change. And it is suspicious to me, if you look at the source of their funding, looking at ExxonMobil, which came out of Standard Oil when the monopoly was broken up, uh, that they were funding scientists to produce different research than they were doing internally. So internally, they knew about climate change and were preparing for it. But externally, they were funding climate denial campaigns and um, science that was misleading and criminal. They are being sued by several attorneys general. Anyway, that is a little off topic, but just to say because the source of the money was in oil, we actually felt like it was our moral responsibility and also, frankly, a continuation of family tradition to try to address the damage that had been done by the source of the family
0: wealth. I appreciate you sharing that. You mentioned the word hypocrisy earlier. What are some of the pushback that you've received from your peer group?
1: You know, interestingly, from, um, from our peer group, that can be defined different ways, of course. So within the Rockefeller family, Virtually everyone um, believes in climate change and is working to help preserve the environment in their own in their own ways. You know, some people it's their day job, others it's through their philanthropy, and others through involvement with the family organizations like the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, the Rockefeller Family Fund, the David Rockefeller Fund, who also have divested from fossil fuels and redirected that money into sustainable investments, impact investments that have a measurable. Social benefit, environmental benefit, um, but that also, you know, provide the returns that we need to keep funding our grant making. And then, peer group. You could also look at foundations. You could look at other wealthy families. You could look at others. Um, we model ourselves very explicitly on the global divest invest movement, so which is a very inclusive movement uh, with twelve trillion dollars now in assets under management that have pledged to divest from fossil fuels. And again, these are faith communities, governments, individuals, um, endowments, other nonprofits, universities. So it's a it's a very inclusive movement if you want to say who your peers are, for us, I guess I would say it's anyone who wants to think through the impact of their decisions. So not only their you know, shopping decisions and their professional decisions and how they choose to live, um, but also how they choose to bank and invest. If you really think through the impact of those decisions, I think that's our peer group. And so some people think that we're not going far enough. Um, Some people maybe think that we are asking too much to ask the banks to phase out of of funding fossil fuels. Um, But we all know one thing, and that is that we have very little time to, we're down to nine years now before we are in an irreversible course towards yet more climate chaos, more climate refugees, there are currently 60 million, and just climate catastrophes. And we've seen this already, Raj. Now, I'm sorry, I've gone way off your <laughs> way off the focus of your question. But we'll just say there's so much evidence that I don't know who could deny the effects of climate change. At this point, it's just, is everyone doing what they can to start to counteract the effects to align with Paris, by which I mean committing to a pathway whereby we limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius? And even at two um, percent, some people thought that was that would be okay. It's actually not okay. That still condemns some island nations and some lower lying places where they already are suffering so much to, to utter devastation.
0: So, going back to the banks for a moment, you know, without giving the banks ultimatums, how are you encouraging the banks to do the right thing?
1: Well, encouraging them to do the right thing is showing them what the risks they're facing are. That's what banks do is assess risk. And so not only do we as clients care about our money and keeping our money and growing our money, and we see investments in fossil fuel companies as enormously risky. I mean, despite the fact that, that there have been $500 trillion in fossil fuel subsidies over the last 10 years energy companies have been the worst performers on the S&P over the last 10 years. And so, you know, it's not only that science can't wait, that science has shown us that we are destroying our planet and slowly, you know, slowly seeing the effects of, um, of uh, climate change that are only going to increase with time. The higher the temperature goes, the more rapid the feedback loop is and the greater the damage is. Not only that, we're seeing that we have to use the banks to invest in clean energy, and so they are the ones who can figure out how they want to assess the financial risk of their uh, fossil fuel investments, which of course is the, the price of the stock of these companies if they're investing in a company is tied to the value of the reserves. We know there's a carbon budget we can't burn all the carbon that has already been discovered. So any money that's going into further infrastructure in exploration is just throwing good money after bad. But the banks know how to assess that risk. And the banks also know how to figure out what the more appropriate investments for them would be. The COVID has been awful in so many ways. And it is only a glimpse of what it's going to be like when the entirely uh, predictable systemic risk of climate change when those full effects are felt. So really what we're asking banks to do is to think in their own financial best interest, which is to be making safer investments and also, frankly, to be competing for the best talent. I mean, young people do not want to go work for any company, much less a bank that is funding dirty energy. They simply don't. They want to work in places that feel consistent with their values and where they feel like they're addressing what younger generations do appreciate is the greatest risk of our time. And so to overcome um, not only the risk of losing clients who want to have their money pointed towards the future, they, have, they are facing the risk of losing the best staff.
0: So you mentioned clients and individuals. What can... Individuals and families do to align with you on this mission.
1: Well, the very uh, we have a lot of information up on our website. One thing that I uh, really enjoy about working on climate is and working in impact investing, which again is investing in the solutions for the future, is the transparency and the accountability. So we are putting up as much material as we possibly can, and we are collecting information on different banks to help us educate ourselves and others about what their banks are doing and what questions they can ask. So again, to go to our our website, bankforward, B-A-N-K-F-W-D.org, to find those resources and also to find the pledge that we are asking everyone to consider. And that is to start asking questions. I mean, even initiating the conversation with your financial advisor can be very influential. There are definitely, and we have talked to them, there are definitely people within these banks. And again, we started with JPMorgan Chase because of our association, but also because JPMorgan Chase is by far the worst in terms of funding fossil fuels since the Paris Agreement was signed at the end of 2015. Um, starting in 2016, there have been 35 leading banks who have invested in, um, in fossil fuel energy when they should have been moving away from it. Because at that point we were very clear on what the science was dictating. Despite all that, they put another $2.7 trillion into fossil fuels. So and JP Morgan Chase is the leading funder and is, um, 36% Ahead provided 30%, 36% more financing than Wells Fargo did. So that's why we're targeting them. Anyway, engage, ask the questions, ask why they're still financing fossil fuels, ask them if they have looked at their own operations, not only the carbon footprint that they have from you know literally running their buildings and where they're sourcing their energy, but really looking at then the later effects of the carbon that's being emitted and the damage that's being done. Through projects that they're funding. So ask them from those metrics um, and and hold them accountable for how are you aligning with the parents goals. There are a lot of resources out there for banks to look at. um, and, And some banks have taken some significant steps forward to green their own operations and to green their investments. And so just to keep pushing them to do that. And then we also would love to have people give us their names and as much information as they're comfortable sharing with us so that we can keep in touch. And then finally to really consider switching to another bank if you are not successful in getting your bank to change its practices.
0: And I will put links to your site in the show notes. I appreciate that.
1: Thank you. i to take
0: a So, Valerie, how can people access the toolkit that you provide?
1: Well, if you sign, at some point, we will be making this um, public and, and open. We're still uh, keeping a lot of the information confidential as we continue to engage with J.P. Morgan Chase and as we continue to build our network. But if you do sign the pledge, then you get access to our toolkit because the last thing anyone needs is more work to do. And so we are putting up model letters or have put up model letters of just questions that you can ask your financial advisors in ways that you can um, educate yourself about what a meaningful response from them is. Sometimes it can be really hard to figure out what a bank, when they are talking about all the clean energy investing that they are doing, to really understand if it's legitimate and also in comparison to the dirty energy investing that they're doing, if it is significant. You know, is it something that is basically you're just doing for marketing purposes? Or is it something that you're doing because you are truly committed to the new clean energy economy?
0: I appreciate it. So Valerie, I'm going to take a hard right turn here and get to the crux of our conversation, which is the why behind what you're doing. You know, obviously, you're extremely committed to this movement. But why and what keeps you continuously motivated?
1: I am committed to this movement partially out of Guilt. I cannot deny that. And you know, Brene Brown has the whole the whole incredibly interesting and important, I think, take on guilt versus shame, that shame is not productive because it's shame about who you are just ends up making you bitter and insecure. And but guilt is about your actions. And so although no, I did not, um, I was not one of the ones who was digging oil out of the ground or negotiating with the railroads and, and everything that John D. Rockefeller Senior did. I have benefited from that wealth, and I—it's you know—it's very similar to the whole fascinating, important movement that we have going on now around racial justice, and that just that realization that you have to be anti-racist. You can't just say you're not racist. You have to be working to acknowledge the privilege that that those of us who are white have been, have. Um, been able to take advantage of, even unknowingly, and then begin to address that to try to bring more justice to people who have been discriminated against and who are suffering. So guilt specifically around what my um, what my privilege comes from, and also because so much of my time, my, my actually my professional background is as a middle school special education teacher. I got into climate work much later into my in my life, but just everyone who is part of this realizing there is a lot that we can do. So there's just so much hope too. So not only that. We have our the Rockefeller family is under special moral obligation to do this. Really, everyone, because the time is so short, it is essential that everyone turn their resources towards building a better future. And for Raj, I know you've worked in different, you know, private sector nonprofits. I think these these sectors are not as distinct as they used to be, especially when it comes to sustainable investing. That what you can be investing in something you can be giving to it philanthrop- uh, philanthropically you know we all need to work together we all need to seek of course government regulation it is right now excuse me an excuse that a lot are using while we're waiting for government regulation we can't wait anymore we all do need to be advocating sorry we all need to be advocating for climate responsible policies and supporting um, uh, politicians who respect the economic development opportunities as well as the scientific urgency of of, uh, switching to a new economy and switching to renewable energy specifically. But we all need to be thinking about our motivations that are both maybe negative, what we're not going to do that is damaging anymore, but also thinking about the opportunity and the positivity around it that we really can make change just through simple individual consumer decisions, your banking decisions, and also, frankly, really finding your voice as an advocate.
0: So you said so many things there. First of all, let me go back to Brene Brown. I'm a big fan, and I agree about shame being nonproductive. You you mentioned nonprofit and for-profit, and I'm a firm believer that nothing happens in silos. We, like nature, are all interconnected, whether we recognize it or not so i think that's a really important point to point out and regarding the policy and yes i agree that it's too late to have or to continue having conversations and we need to lean more into action than just talking about it
1: yes and there's so, there's a joy piece of it too you know that there is a certain satisfaction that comes from thinking you're doing good for the world. And there's true joy that comes when you find that you're making decisions and living a life that feels sort of authentic to you, that makes you feel like you're an um, an integral part of a meaningful whole. And also just this should be a motivation for everything. I just love the people that I work with and I learn so much all the time and I also love I grew up in in politics my father was a politician and uh it's it's much less it was much less polarized then than it is now but you can get into that sort of good versus evil Um, binary way of thinking when you're in politics. And something that I love about the climate change movement is there are incredibly responsible investment bankers and there are incredibly brilliant indigenous leaders looking at Um, the renewal of forests and agricultures is for carbon capture and for more sustainable types of agriculture. You know, there are wonderful people everywhere who are all working towards the same goals, just in their different ways. And we have so much to learn from each other. And that just brings a real joy and pleasure to the movement.
0: I feel like there's a place in the movement for everyone.
1: There has to be. There absolutely has to be. I agree. I, I like your holistic way of of looking at things. I mean, we really are an ecosystem in every way. And it's when we're in denial of that, that we get out of balance and then people get scared and they cling on to what they have. And I think that that is why it's so important. Something I mentioned earlier, this sort of just transition concept, where it's not that we want to just close down the coal mines. No, we want to provide better, safer jobs for miners and there's one, there's one company, actually, that I personally invest in in West Virginia called Solar Holler, and their tagline is mine the sun, because that's what it is. is—like The the resources of the future and the good jobs and the growth, that's coming from solar companies. The number of coal miners has been declining ever since the year I was born. I mean, that the height was in the 1950s, and that's from mechanization as well as from more realization of the environmental damage. And frankly, just it's so much cheaper to do solar and other renewables now. I don't need to tell you that the International Energy Agency came out with a report saying that they think renewables would be 80% of the energy sector, just looking at all current factors and conditions. So, you know, to make money, to get jobs, to be realistic about what we need to do, you need to be moving into away from fossil fuels.
0: Couldn't agree more. So, Valerie, you said you came to the climate change movement late. What's the most valuable lesson that you've learned about yourself on this journey?
1: I um, learned that I can learn something new. And that is I was one of those incredibly annoying people who knew exactly what I wanted to do in college. I, uh, I was tutoring and just decided I wanted to be a teacher and then just always worked in education and always worked for the government and had this very clear path. And I've learned that I can uh, be a bit of an entrepreneur. It feels like that starting bank forward. I'd never started anything before. And just that's very different decisions that you have to make and different kinds of pressures, even starting a, a nonprofit, which of course bank forward is. And I've learned that I can talk about money and investing things that I never talked about growing up and didn't talk about as part of my, you know, in the classroom, uh, with my students so I, I suppose I've learned that we all have to be open-minded about who we are and what we do and where we can add value. I could not have predicted. My parents always said to me, when you look back over your life, things will make sense. And that is true. And, but I, there's still no way I can look forward and predict what's going to come next.
0: Well, let's talk about forward. It's a magic. You have a magic wand, 2025, your perfect vision of bank forward. What does it look like?
1: Um, that we would have gone out of business in 2021 or 2022. And that is because once we see that there has been enough change in the banks and we really do believe in the power of networks, again, families like ours, um, individual clients, anyone who is banking at a, at a, um, a US bank, we're just focused on the U S at this point, Europe is actually quite far Ahead of the United States in terms of their regulations and their their bank policies, although they still have a lot of you know a lot of progress still to make, we hope that banks have turned themselves around and have, have phased out fossil fuels and have committed to do so, have plans to do so, have metrics for you know along the way to 2030 to show how they are going to have their emissions by then. And so we won't need to exist because the banks are going to be competing with each other to be the most climate responsible and to be making the wisest investments in solar, wind, whatever renewables or other sources of energy that could be could have been devised by 2025. So by 2025, we should see the fruits of what we're already beginning to see now, which are banks making commitments To, for instance, all banks except for Bank of America said they're no longer going to fund drilling in the Arctic. There's something called PCAF, whereby banks can measure their own carbon output and then disclose these metrics of what they are investing in, lending to, underwriting. And then then we have comparable information between banks about who really is being most responsible on climate. There are a lot of banks that are saying that they're no longer going to invest in coal, which is, you know, sort of easy to say because it's been declining for so long, but it is still meaningful that they're doing that. And we hope that there are other business alliances. I know some of um, the interviews that you have done have have been with people who are encouraging business coalitions to um, to sort of spur each other on to adopt best practices and to and to adopt more common metrics, so we really can compare which companies we want to shop with and whose stock we want to buy. The momentum well, is there. The momentum is definitely there.
0: Well, I don't think I've said this before, but I look forward to you putting yourself out of business.
1: Yes, I know. Thank you. Thank you. We will I promise we will find something else to 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 stay meaningfully occupied. But we we are hoping that, you know, this is where competition works, that the banks are increasingly going to realize, as there are many signs of evidence that they already are, that they have to shift their practices. And that they are going to be um, doing what they do best, which is making wise investment decisions and running their operations efficiently.
0: Sounds beautiful. So, Valerie, last question. And this could be professional or personal. You could be speaking to families that have assets under control or individuals. But if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be?
1: Um, This is my words of wisdom come largely from my children. My kids are 11, 13, and 15 And I can't get away with anything without pushback or challenge. And it's actually a great way to live. And I always taught middle school because I I love this. And those kids do, they have no filter and they just observe. So pretend that you're living with a bunch of adolescents all the time who are questioning you and just know every decision that you make, everything that you do, it says something about you. And when you were really thinking through what you're doing and saying carefully, you start to live more authentically and you can enjoy yourself more. There's a certain freedom in total honesty and transparency and just respect. That's what environmentalism is based on. Respect for the ecosystem, respect for future generations, respect for other species. And so if you live your life as openly as possible that way, you know, ideally, actually don't think of yourself surrounded by adolescents because I think most people don't find that so appealing. But just think about trying to live your full truth. And it's very hard to do. I'm certainly not, not there yet myself, but you actually become happier. It doesn't mean that you live a more austere life or that you, um, you know, are ashamed of what you're doing. It's actually, it just leads you to better decisions that just, uh, feel more like true expressions of who you want to be and who you really are deep down.
0: And that advice resonates deeply with me. I have three children, one that is in middle school. And I had a mentor tell me many years ago, before I even had kids, he said, Raj, if you ever have kids, keep this in mind that forget what you say, they'll watch what you do. And I always feel like I have these pairs of eyes on me all the time, just kind of watching my actions. And it does kind of, you know push me to be as true to myself as possible, but also show them and what I call it, I call it dancing in public. And what I mean by that example, this podcast is that, you know, let's try to live as aligned to our, you know, mission as possible in private and in public.
1: Yes. And keep the humor in it. Just when I think I'm so virtuous, my kids start calling me hip and not like they think I'm cool, like they think I'm such a hypocrite. So know that (laughs) there's got to be a certain humor in all of it and always room for continued growth.
0: I agree, Valerie. Valerie, thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we go?
1: Um, Just that everyone can find a way of being involved in the movement. If you are not Uh, If climate finance is not important to you or if you're pleased with the bank that you have, there is a role for everyone. There are so many organizations out there and so many ways to get involved, either. And if you're interested in policy, if you like sort of that more intellectual exercise, there's work that you can do in politics. And if you're interested in uh, getting your hands literally dirty, there are so many community gardens and you can encourage your school to develop a garden. There's so many educational opportunities. There's something else I'm part of that the Aspen Institute started called K-12 Climate Action, and that is really how to turn schools around just through contracts with busing companies, Um, again, community gardens, school gardens, curriculum. There's so many ways, school lunches, there's so many ways to get involved that we can help turn this world around to be the future that we know we can achieve.
0: Valerie, thank you again so much, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon.
1: Thank you so much, Raz. I really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you. Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, The Adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue at our website, nexuspmg.com, under the Original Content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the cleantech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.